And I'm going to begin reading at verse 31, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. But again, we'll be looking at verse 33 and 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's people said, let's ask for his blessing. Oh God in heaven, now we, we open your word and we acknowledge our need for your help. For only, Lord, by your Spirit can we understand spiritual things and, and understand them in truth and deeply. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you've given us your Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. And, Spirit, we pray that this morning you would do just that, that we would hear our Savior speaking to us, uh, that we would hear the love of God the Father for us, uh, that we would be able to believe in a, in a new, deep way the gospel, the good news of what you've accomplished for us in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. I'd like to start just by asking you a question. Um, would you say that you are a bold Christian? Uh, would you say that your life is defined by a calm confidence and gentle, persistent courage? Uh, Proverbs 21 verse 8 says that the, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. It's a very helpful word picture because the boldness of a lion, it's not, it's not audacious, it's not, it's not uh, arrogant. Uh, if, you, if you just picture in your mind's eye, I'm sure you've seen this, uh, a, a liar of lions resting on a, maybe a rocky hill overlooking the, the savannah, and they are chill. Right, Hakuna Matata. Uh, there, there's, they are at peace. They are not worried. There's this quiet strength in their eyes. This, this calm confidence about them. They know who they are. They're lions. King of the jungle. Well, wouldn't you like to be like that? We often look much more like mice, right? Scurrying around, frightened by everything, hiding. Wouldn't you like to have a calm confidence about you as you go about your...
Christian life, wouldn't it be great to have a restful spirit and inner peace even in times of trial, particularly in times of trial? Wouldn't it be great to be unafraid? Not, just not afraid of things. Not even of death. The Bible says the righteous are like that. Well, how do you get that? And the answer in Romans chapter 8 is you get that through a deep, full, functioning assurance of God's love and grace and purpose for you in Jesus Christ. We've said it before, Romans chapter 8 is a chapter devoted to this issue of assurance. And the assurance that Paul is pursuing here is not uh, just the, the absence of doubt. There are many professing Christians who don't struggle that much with doubt. They believe what the Bible says. But they do struggle with worry. They do struggle with fear. And the assurance that Paul is after in Romans chapter 8 is a, an assurance that empowers a believer to face tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, being slaughtered like sheep, in the calm confidence that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the assurance that Paul is, is after. And the only way to gain that kind of assurance, that you live as a conqueror in Jesus, no matter what the world and the flesh and the devil throw at you, the, the way we get that is by taking the gospel to heart. And, and Paul ex just lays out these reasons for assurance with these five magnificent questions, which are, again, a challenge that he throws out to the universe. If this is what God has done for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's verse 31. If God has given us his own son as our redeemer, how will he not with Jesus graciously give us everything we need? That's verse 32. Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? Verse 33. It is God who justifies who? Who is he that condemns? Verse 34. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. Those are the great challenges that Paul throws out. And, and every question reveals a, a new um, Beautiful aspect of the diamond of the gospel. If you just turn the gospel, you see all these different facets and aspects as the light of God's truth and love and grace comes shining through. And this morning, we're going to be looking at that diamond through the lens of questions three and four. Who shall lay any charge? Who shall condemn? They're basically the same question. When Paul thinks about the great need of the world... He thinks about the issue of condemnation. If, we were, if, you were to, uh, if someone had, would ask you, what's the great need of the world today? I think we, our mind would go to, uh, there's so many people without food, and, and there are. There's so many places that are ravaged by war, and it's true. There's places where disease is just wreaking havoc, where poverty is destroying people's lives, and that's all true, and all that matters. But it's 
all of those things are true because this one other thing is true. All of those things exist because this thing exists. When Paul thinks about the great need of the world, he thinks about a a human race that is under the condemnation of God. A human race that lives as children of Adam under the curse of the law. The objective existential problem with the world is that we live under condemnation. That was Romans 1 and 2 and the first part of 3 was was all about that fact, that truth. And that's true not just generically of the world, it's true individually and subjectively. This is is why we experience life as we do. We We live our lives with the nagging realization that we have fallen short of the glory of God. That we're not not whole, we're not clean, we're not sufficient, we're not enough, we're we're not what we were meant to be. And so mankind is burdened with shame, with guilt, with condemnation ever since Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. And and. This makes us anxious in life. It makes us afraid in death. But you see, the reason that Paul boasts in the gospel and glories in the gospel, the reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is the good news of God's great resolution of the problem of condemnation. And so chapter 8 begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul now, as he's concluding this portion of his letter, comes right back to that theme as he pounds home what God has accomplished for mankind with these magnificent challenges. Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? Who shall condemn us? Who shall condemn us? Now, that, uh, that challenge is shown uh, to be beautiful and precious when we think about, well, who does challenge, uh, condemn us? Because the fact is, we are condemned by many sources. Uh, our own conscience condemns us. Well, unless your conscience is dead and just seared, you know that you sin. You know that you've, you've fallen short of God's glory. You know that, there's, that, that you're not... Um, what you ought to be. Your conscience condemns you of specific things you've said and done that were contrary to the will of God. Your conscience is God's voice, right? Is, is God's put that conscience in you and, 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 and it reminds us that we're not what we ought to be. The world condemns us, of course. The world, increasingly, the Western culture, as we see, is accusing uh, the church and Christians of being actually a, a problem, uh, contrary to human flourishing, that we are, well, we, we are the ones who laden people with guilt. We're the ones who um, m- make these rules and, and, and try to establish these boundaries and these truths that, that suppress humanity. But it's also more personal than that. The world will be happy to point out your sin, right? You're at work and you're slacking off and they're happy to point out you call yourself a Christian and that's how you work. Or that's how you talk. Call yourself a Christian and, and you're going to laugh at that dirty joke. Right? The, the accusations of the world are sometimes just flat true. We are sometimes hypocrites. 
We don't act according to our confession. Of course, the great condemner in our life is the devil himself, right? The Bible calls him the accuser of the brothers who stands before God and accuses us day and night. That's Revelation 12, 10. The devil is constantly accusing us. He's our mortal enemy, and he, and he loves to cause doubt in our mind. And, and one of the best ways to do that is just to point out the truth, the reality of our sin. The devil will he'll just charge you. Did, you. did you see what you did today? Right? You're laying in bed at night, and, and, and he'll bring these things to your mind. You call yourself a Christian? You think God's just going to overlook that? How many uh, times haven't you experienced the accusations of the devil's speaking to you in that way. But, but far worse, the Bible says that the devil is accusing us before God himself. The devil says to God, did you see that? Did you see what, what so-and-so did? Boyce writes, if you're a Christian, Satan is constantly accusing you to God. He's saying, did you see what John Smith did? Did you see how wicked and ungodly he acted today? How can a person do that and you still regard him as a, as a Christian? How, how can you accept them? The devil condemns us, accuses us. And of course, the devil uses a weapon to do that, and that weapon is the law of God. Right? The, the, the devil knows his Bible. The devil, the devil knows what God requires, what obedience looks like, what disobedience means. He knows all of it. And he'll take the law as his, the weapon in his hand, and, and using the law, he accuses us before God. Didn't he, did you not say, God, the soul that sins shall surely die? That's a, that's a real accusation. It's got merit to it. And it's offered before the court of God in heaven. And so if we just ask, who shall lay any charge? Well, all kinds of things condemn us. But Paul raises wonderful gospel truths to silence every accusation and everyone who might condemn. And let's look together at these gospel assurances. The, the, the first assurance is found in the question itself. Notice Paul doesn't ask, um, who shall lay any charge against us? It's not what he says. What, what does he say? He says, who shall lay any charge against God's elect? God's elect. You see, this is a very important reminder of, of our identity as a Christian. We're not just people who believe in Jesus. That's true. But underneath that truth, we are God's elect. Not God's elite. We're not elite. The Bible makes very clear. He chose the lowly things, the, the things that are not, the shameful things, the weak things. We're not the elite. But we are the elect. The people that God chose before the foundation of the world to be his very own possession, to be the particular recipients of his saving love and redeeming power. And so you'll find that throughout the Bible. Let me just give you a few verses from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 1.5, we have been predestined for adoption as sons. Colossians 3.4, we are God's chosen ones. And Paul will say there, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly beloved, let's live like it. We're God's chosen ones. Ephesians 1.11, we've been predestined to receive an inheritance in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, we are destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that your Christian identity, you see, is 
is rooted in the fact of God's election. That's who you are. You are an elect child of God. And, and that means that the unified, sovereign, single, immutable purpose of God for you is eternal salvation. To make you in the likeness of Christ and to bring you into the presence of Christ. In fact, your election is, is all about Jesus. To be elect means to be elect unto Christ, chosen for Him, to belong to Him, to be pardoned by the blood of Christ and robed in the righteousness of Christ and conformed to the image of Christ and eternally united to Christ and an heir of the glory of Christ. That's what it means to be elect. To belong to Jesus. And, th and that's God's sovereign purpose for you. So in Paul's question is now... Who shall lay a single accusation against those people? Against those people. Who can lay a single solitary charge against those whom God has chosen to be His redeemed and righteous people? Who's going who's to oppose that? Martin Luther says this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Take that. That's exactly the Christian's confession. We're the elect of God. Another assurance here, Paul reminds us that we've been justified by God. Justified by God. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? The, the argument is perfectly clear. You haven't been justified by men. You didn't go before you know, a judge downtown Grand Rapids and he says, yeah, you're, you're okay, you're, you're right with God. It's not how it happened. You've not even been justified by angels. An angel didn't step forward and say, I, I declare you innocent of all charges. It's not what happened. It is God who justifies. The one against whom we've sinned. The one we've offended. The, the, and the one who is the judge. The only judge of heaven and earth. He's, he's God. God alone. None above him, none before him, right? All of time in his hands, his throne endures, shall ever stand. That God. You see, there's no possible higher court of appeal. God declares what will be. God defines what is true. And there's no possible opposing verdict. So if God has justified you, who will condemn what mere mortal would have the audacity to step forward and suggest that, that God is, is wrong in this? Or, or could overturn God's verdict in your behalf? Isaiah writes this in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 8. He says, who will contend with me? Who will charge me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord helps me. Who will declare me guilty? 
The Lord is my help and my shield, my salvation. Who will declare me guilty? God justifies, not anyone else. And the assurance, third, in, in the act of God's justification. So not only are we the elect of God, justified by God, but we're justified by God. What does God do in justification? Well, in justification, God gathers the court of heaven and he sits in his judicial role as judge to render his verdict. He's, he listens to the accusations of the devil. He, he notes the condemnation of the law, all the ways that we violated his law, both in things we have done and things we failed to do. All the evidence is laid out in front of him. He's completely aware of the wretched truth of our sin. There's not a thought he doesn't know that hasn't been recorded. Nothing is hid from his eyes. And then he takes the full, awful reality of our guilt and he lays it all upon his sinless son, Jesus Christ, and pours out all the justice of the law upon Jesus so that our sin is atoned for. And then he takes the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ and he credits it freely to our account. So in the act of justification, we're not simply cleansed of our sin, we're clothed in a perfect righteousness. So that you see, on the righteousness of Christ, God renders his verdict, and who could possibly overturn that? It's perfect justice. Perfect justice. Our assurance and justification rests not just on the fact that God is God and who's going to withstand him, but it rests on the perfect justness of the sentence. The condemnation is removed because, because justice has been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And this is what God does. This is what God promises for all his elect. And you realize then, you see, that who, who can lay a charge against us? Who could condemn us in any ultimate meaningful way when God declares us righteous? And that's what he's done. So there's no condemnation. All guilt, shame, gone. No more reason to fear. Not for God's elect, justified saints. But Paul doesn't stop there. He points us to the assurance of a living Jesus. Who is he that condemns, he says in verse 4, and then he goes right to the objective historic facts of the gospel. Christ Jesus, who died objectively true, died on a cross. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. See, just, let's just break that down. Who is going to condemn us when Jesus died for us and rose again? And you got to tie that together. It's, it's easy to see why Jesus' death, how that relates to our justification, right? He died bearing our sin. He was condemned in our place. That's, 
easy for us to see. How does the resurrection relate to our justification? Why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead for us to be justified? Well, it's, if you think about it this way, what if Christ didn't raise from the dead? How would we know that our sins were truly atoned for at all? I mean, sure, Jesus said that he was dying an atoning death, but what if he was just mistaken? What if he was confused? What if he just thought he was the Son of God? What, what if it was a metaphor? And he's not actually the Son of God who is able to take away the sin of the world. I mean, other people have been confused. Other people have said they were divine. And what if Jesus were just as confused as they were? You see... If Jesus was still dead in the tomb, there would be no way for us to know. All we would have to rely on would be the words of a dead man, a dead religious teacher, just like every other religion of man. Right? We would believe in Jesus, a self-proclaimed prophet of God who, who says that we are made fit for heaven by a free act of grace, and other people believe in Muhammad, a self-proclaimed prophet of God, who says you can only get to heaven by following the dictates of the Islamic religion. And who's to say who's right? Right? Is it Jesus or Muhammad? Both claim to be prophets of God. Both died. Both are buried. How do you know? Resurrection. That's how you know. Resurrection. Only one was raised from the dead. Only one broke the bars of death itself and walked out of that tomb in a fully glorified body, never to die again. Because he defeated death. Only one, Jesus. And that makes all the difference. You see, the victorious resurrection of Jesus is God's irrefutable testimony and evidence concerning all that Jesus said and all that Jesus accomplished. So that Paul can say in Romans 4.25, he was raised to life for our justification. It's God's verdict on the truth of Christ and the truth of what he has done for us. That, that the sacrifice is sufficient and the sacrifice is satisfactory. God testifies in the resurrection of Christ to our justification. The, your justification then, you see, is, is just as certain as the resurrection of Jesus himself. If Christ is raised from the dead, then the verdict on your behalf has been rendered Righteous, innocent, acquitted, forgiven, fit for heaven, fit for glory. Uh, Tory writes this, he says, I look at the cross and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the empty tomb and the risen Lord and I know that, that the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me no matter how many or how great my sins may have been. That's what the resurrection means. And it's, it's even more than that. Jesus was not only raised, Jesus ascended. He's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. He's at the right hand of God means all authority and power belong to him. He's seated there because the work is finished. He's interceding for us because 
because the Holy Spirit now is, is carrying out, working out all that Christ has accomplished in your life, in the life of all of God's elect all over the world throughout time until the, elect, the last elect child is brought in. Friends, with such a great Savior and such a great salvation, why should we not live lives with calm peace and a gentle, the gentle confidence of a lion? We're the children of the great lion, right? Jesus Christ. We can live with a, with a complete confidence that Jesus knows each of us individually. He loves each of us infinitely. He's present in every moment. He's at work in every circumstance. And we can have that calm confidence of a lion, calmly resting in the confidence of who we are in Christ. We're the children of God, the elect, the justified. And we do not need to be afraid. We don't need to fear. We can be at peace in everything. I love Paul's benediction in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Doesn't mean life will be easy. Doesn't mean there won't be trials. Doesn't mean there won't be tears. But if these things are true, and they are absolutely true, then you can live and I can live at peace, calm in our soul, as we trust in the God who justified us, the Jesus who died for us, who is right now interceding for us until the day that he brings us home. Let's live like it. Amen. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the deep assurance we can have in the gospel as those who are elect of God, justified by God, declared righteous through the sacrifice and obedience of Jesus Christ, protected now by the power of Christ, preserved by the Holy Spirit until the day we see Christ. And so we cannot be lost and have nothing to lose. And Jesus, I pray that these truths would make their way into our life so that there flows the fruit of kindness and compassion and generosity. There's a, there's a calm confidence about us in our soul. Because these things are true and, and no one can make them untrue, not even ourselves. And so, Jesus, I pray that your spirit would press these things into our life and conform us then as a body and as individuals in the likeness of Christ as we trust these things. For, oh God, you have spoken them. And so our hope and our trust is in you. Lord, transform our lives with these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Let's stand together and sing it.
God's people said. Amen. Receive his blessing. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all till Christ come again. Amen.
Good morning, boys and girls. Come on up to the front. We are going to start out with Romans 8, 38 and 39. Pastor Dale read it this morning, and it's a passage that's coming up. Let's sing Romans 8, 38 and 39. Sing that verse enough and we'll all have it memorized. We're going to sing a Christmas song. Joy to the world, the Lord is come.
going to sing a song that we're going to sing tonight so you can practice up and help your moms and dads for the cause. I forgot to look. Do we have any birthdays today? Do we have any birthdays? No birthdays? All right, I don't see any birthday people coming up. I think we have time to sing both the next two songs. So we're going to sing There is a Redeemer. I know the adults are being really noisy today. Let's see how quiet we can be. Ready? Watch. Watch. Get your hand up. There are still some boys and girls that are not watching. Hand up, eyes on me, lips are closed. You're showing you're ready to listen and listen to the adults fellowshipping in the back. Boys and girls, you're doing great today and we are gonna sing There is a Redeemer. Big, big voices so we out drown, drowned out the adults singing.
the weatherman told me snow is coming. So I picked out, Lord, make me clean like the new fallen snow. It will come. And I hope you think every time you see it that the Lord can make us clean. I know it's been a while since we sung this one, so I'm going to need you to sing loudly when you hear. We'll sing it two times, all right? Lord, make me clean like the snow that's coming. are ready. We do not have Sunday school today, right, Mrs. McCrory? So we have fruit snacks up here. Stay where you are so you can get a fruit snack. 